Hey, welcome to the Become Unlimited podcast. This is Jonathan Bettis, your host. I want to remind you here the purpose of the podcast is to explore and equip you with the most effective tools and practices across areas such as nutrition, fitness, emotional and mental health, spirituality, relationships, and overall lifestyle design. I want to welcome you to the first episode of the podcast where I have the privilege of sharing with you a conversation I had with one of my really close friends, Daniel Lai. And this first conversation focused around health and fitness, where we actually talk through why it's so hard today to really understand what the heck to eat, why it's so difficult, why it's so confusing. Daniel also helps lay out a framework for us to consider when we approach health and fitness and what we might eat, when to eat it, and also how much. So we'll see what Daniel has to say about that. And of course, I'll give you a brief intro into who Daniel is and what he does in the world today. And before we launch into that and also into the conversation, I do want to spend a couple minutes here sharing a bit of context into why I wanted to start with the first podcast episode talking about health and fitness and nutrition in the first place. In deciding what to talk about and also who to talk to for this first episode, I considered where I personally started when it came to personal development and overall wellness and well-being. And that being said, it came down to food. It was really a transformation with how I approached food, health, and fitness overall. And now in retrospect, seeing how much of an impact that transition had on me, or really the changes that I made in my life, not only, of course, based on the foods that I was eating, and trust me, when I say that I changed the way I eat, I mean I completely obliterated my old ways of eating because I was putting things into my body that today I literally wouldn't even think about consuming. And yeah, that really comes down to so much processed foods and junk and fast food. And I, again, had no awareness as to what it was doing to my body and the other piece here is I frankly had normalized how I felt, meaning I thought, well, I'm not sick. I'm not necessarily uh, too out of shape. I don't have disease. So therefore, meh, just keep doing what you're doing. You're okay. I didn't necessarily have the mindset around longevity and vitality that I was seeking for and that I actually do everything that I do today to actually keep that feeling of vitality on a day-to-day -day basis because again I, I actually had no reference to what it meant to truly have boundless energy and to truly feel good after meals so to say the least when we change what we put into our bodies you pretty much upgrade the fuel that you're putting into your body and therefore you're running more lean, you're running more efficiently, you're putting into your body what your body is asking for from just a basic biological level of what we're meant to consume, making sure that everything that your body needs to function at its best, making sure that all those needs are met. And generally those needs are not met when we're consuming junk foods and processed and refined foods full of sugar that are made in a laboratory and do not come from the earth. So with all of that, I'll say that not only did my mindset change, but also the feeling of having 
vital energy from my body, but also mental clarity and boundless energy from that point of view. But also emotionally, I, I frankly became more emotionally stable. I just didn't realize how shitty I was feeling before I changed how I eat. And this is now about five years ago. Uh, and the other aspect here is I was able to see how much this problem was manifesting, not only for myself, but really across everyone that was close to me and my family, especially. And one clear moment that I had was seeing why my mom, about again, five years ago, she was borderline type two diabetic and she was really not getting any help from doctors. And I'm not saying the doctors are bad people, but the training that I believe those doctors received, frankly, is outdated. It needs to be revamped, it needs to be refreshed. And there was something wrong. Therefore, when I completely changed how I was eating, I saw the changes in my body, I saw the changes in how I felt. And I literally convinced my mom to change her ways and and take a chance with the advice that I had compared to the doctors. And it was risky because we were literally going against the grain here and ignoring all of the advice from the doctors of what to eat. And what we really did was just cut out the refined crap that she was putting into her body and everything that had excessive carbohydrates and sugars. And we really just focused on real whole foods. And we're going to get a lot into that in the conversation with Daniel. But all to say, just in cutting out the junk that she was putting out into her body, she was able to get off of all medications. She was able to actually lose about 40 pounds with not even focusing on exercise here. This is literally just changing her diet and her verbatim telling me, I actually feel like I did in my 20s in terms of energy and her excitement for life. You can just see it in her face again. She was feeling great and continues to feel great to this day, just following a basic real whole food uh, mindset around food. So I'm not going to spend too much more time there. Again, I'm really passionate about this and I love sharing the story of me, of myself transitioning, but also my mom's transformation and how it's helped us transform. And then at this point, I've been definitely able to, to help a lot of people understand the effects of food in the body and how it's such a foundational component, especially in this world of personal development that we have to really hone in on. And if we don't have this area of our life really figured out, it's difficult to take action on the other areas where we want to excel. So with all of these hugely transformational experiences when it comes to, to food overall, but also just generally health and fitness, I thought, well, this has to be where we start the journey with the podcast. And the person I thought to bring on, who now I'm excited to, to introduce before I launch you into the conversation, is with Daniel Lai. And Daniel Lai is a, is a close friend of mine now who was introduced to me by uh, one of our mutual friends, shout out to Sebastian. And we were introduced as compatible health nuts, essentially. He, he found two people, Sebastian found two people who were almost as equally into similar things. And I thought, yeah, please introduce me to Daniel. I'd love to connect with him. And sure enough, we hit it off. We've been connected for a while now, and I was very excited to bring him on as the first guest. Uh, Daniel is very into the weeds and knowledgeable when it comes to biological processes and how 
the processes in our body actually manifest from what we put into our body and how we move our bodies. And this will be a very interesting conversation where Daniel lays out a simple framework for us to think about how we might approach our overall shift into prioritizing our health and wellness and also fitness. Daniel also gets into some of the areas that we think are very critical to approaching this journey and transforming how we approach health and fitness, why it becomes so confusing. We explore that as well. What, what is this that makes it so hard to actually make the changes that we want to make? All right, so let me introduce Daniel Lai. And it was interesting trying to consolidate this because Daniel does so much that we had to figure out how to uh, intro him in a very concise and effective way here. Daniel Lai is a leadership consultant, neuroscience enthusiast, and the author of the Max Vitality blog. Great blog. Check it out. That's my comment, not necessarily part of the intro. He began self-experimenting with various nutrition and fitness frameworks in July 2018 and discovered the importance of lifestyle in the prevention of chronic diseases. He started researching everything he could about nutritional biochemistry, exercise physiology, mental health, and more to better understand how lifestyle behaviors influenced disease. His interest eventually led him to a master's degree in neuroscience with plans to pursue a PhD in neurodegenerative diseases. However, and I'm part of this uh, journey here, during his master's degree, he came to the realization that people weren't actually struggling with the how when it came to lifestyle behaviors, but rather the why. Now he spends his time researching the architecture of human behavior in an attempt to build a framework that enables people to restructure their belief systems and achieve their desired health and overall lifestyle. So with that, you can imagine why I thought Daniel was a great fit for this conversation. And without further ado, let's welcome Daniel to the show. All right, Daniel, welcome to the podcast, man. Awesome. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah. Episode numero uno, number one, your first guest ever. Pretty excited about it. Let's do this. Yeah. And, and the conversation we're having today is pretty close to my heart and and in terms of why I thought this conversation would be a great one to start with is frankly for me everything started in terms of my journey with food and the effects that it had on my body and self-esteem and how I actually just felt on a day-to-day basis and overall how easy it became once I actually got over the the complexity that is that is perceived in the health and fitness world but that's what we're here to talk about hopefully and of course getting your perspective on it because you're a badass in this field and i thought it would be a, a super fun conversation to have and first and foremost tell us your story how did you get into health and fitness yeah so i guess we'll start with for pretty much all of my life growing up i played sports so i was a quote-unquote athlete growing up and the thing is, while I was playing, when I was in high school, you know, playing basketball and volleyball, I never really paid much attention to my nutrition. I never really trained properly either. I just kind of played sports, had fun with friends, etc. Right, and so basically, same thing happened in college. And when I when I graduated from college, I decided to start what I endearingly refer to as Operation Six Pack Abs, and it was effectively my attempt to you know, hone down on nutrition to hone down on my training and get 
a strict routine in place and then see how far I could push my body to its limits. And so that kind of, without getting too into the details of that, that kind of triggered off this cascade of, you know, starting to kind of pick pieces of information from the internet with regards to, you know, nutrition, to exercise, to sleep, to recovery, all, all that good stuff when it comes to health and, uh, health and wellness. So basically I started off with a really strict program with regards to nutrition. It was all full of kind of, you know, the bodybuilder diet, chicken breast, broccoli, mm -hmm. rice, potatoes, all of that delicious stuff. And I soon, I soon came to realize that, you know, this, this isn't sustainable, right? Like bodybuilders do it because they have, they have a goal in mind. They have a timeline in which they know they're going to be really strict with their food and then they're going to have their competition and then that's it. That's what they're preparing for. But for people like us where we're just kind of trying to figure out what to eat on a day-to-day -day basis to maintain good, good health, to maintain optimal vitality, right? That's not sustainable. And so it seems that a lot of people get a little hung up on nutrition because they're looking at the kind of cream of the crop. The people who have the time and the resources to dump into nutrition, into fitness to make their body look the best that it can, right? But we're, we're not like that. So kind of, I, I eventually came to realize that we need us as lay people, not bodybuilders who are preparing for a competition, not athletes who are preparing for, you know, season long sports, et cetera. We need a more sustainable framework that works for us. And so that kind of set the stage for me to think, you know, okay, maybe I need to start learning more about what nutrition precisely is, not just mm. what conventional wisdom states it to be, right? So one thing kind of led to another, and I eventually became mildly obsessive with learning about, you know, nutrition, biochemistry, about exercise physiology, et cetera. So that was kind of the the, the steps that brought me to where I am today. Yeah. Yeah, and it, the, the obsessive bit shows because the level of detail in which you go into in a lot of your <laughs> articles and a lot of things I've read, it shows that you know your stuff, right? Appreciate uh, and, it. And you obviously said there was a lot there and you spent a lot of time simplifying things down to eventually get uh, to a simplified framework that works for you personally based on yeah. your lifestyle and your goals. Um, so I'd be curious to get a little more into that uh, later on in the conversation. But first Absolutely. and foremost... Why is it so confusing knowing what the heck to eat and how to be healthy? Yeah, it's a great question. And <laughs> it's a question that plagued my mind for a long time when I was trying to figure out, you know, what is it that I should be eating to, you know, feel my body, to recover well, to look good, feel good, etc. And I think that really the primary reason that nutrition gets so confusing, it really is dogmatism. and in the way that I see it, there are really few things that can, let me take a step back. Like people approach nutrition almost with the fanaticism of cult-like religion, right? People can get very, very absorbed by the nutrition framework that they use. And the, the reason I think that is, is because you know, we're all supposedly the masters of our own bodies. We we know what we're putting into it on a day-to-day -day basis. We know how we feel every day. So we kind of make the association of, you know, what I'm putting into my body makes me feel good. So this must be the right way to do it. 
And that I think is where it can, where the dogmatism arises from. So mm. for example, the low carb community is notorious for demonizing all carbohydrates, right? Yeah. And I think that stems from, you know, a lot of people turn to low carb with uh, primarily because of weight loss and it it's proven to be pretty effective. It's, I wouldn't say that it's necessarily better than any other uh, diet for weight loss, but there, there, are, there are nuances that we won't touch on here, but for sure. So someone will go on a low carb or ketogenic diet and they'll shed the weight off after a couple of months. And they're like, wow, their brain basically looked at it. Like, what did I do? I went low carb. What did I, what was the outcome that was achieved? I lost a lot of weight. Therefore, a low carb diet must be the best thing for weight loss because I experienced it. Mm. And I think that's, that's where the problem arises is that we can become so honed in on one nutritional framework that we think the others are all irrelevant or not as good or even just bad, right? So I think that nutritional dogmatism really is the key to, we need to avoid the dogmatism in order to figure out what exactly it is that we need to eat to be healthy, really. Mm, yeah. So it sounds like you're saying there is no one perfect diet. It's really about Absolutely. what your unique body needs to be and reach optimal health. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And like just to just to touch on another point with regards to dogmatism is that another another reason is is because nutrition research is pretty hard to carry out because in order to have good science around nutrition, you need to control for a lot of variables and an ideal experiment would be where you take a group of people, put them in a room where you can control every single environmental factor and carry the research out. But like, that's unethical and you, most people won't do that. Right. So a lot of nutrition research is kind of, how would I put it is poorly designed. So there's a, there are a lot of flaws that could occur through it. A lot of confounding factors. And so really anybody who wants to go cherry pick information about ketogenic about vegan about carnivore about any of those frameworks that kind of clash heads with each other they can find research out there to support their own side mm -hmm. and then they can be like look here's the research this is why it's good but again the, the the research is really hard to carry out and so that's not necessarily an indicator that one that just because science is backing a diet or a framework or some nutrition point out just because it's backing that doesn't mean that that's for sure going to be the best thing that you can decide to do for yourself. And one of the, the follow-up questions I, I had here is in, in reading some of the articles and the stuff you put out, you mentioned metabolic flexibility as being one of the, the critical components to really reaching optimized health, but also figuring out what's most optimal to eat really for health. But can you speak to metabolic flexibility, what it is and how do we get it? Yeah. So at basically at a very, very high level, metabolic flexibility is effectively your body's ability to seamlessly transition between burning whatever fuel is available. So in, in other words, it's matching your fuel oxidation to your fuel supply, right? So let's at I guess to take a step back again, at any point in time, your body is always burning a combination of carbohydrates and fats. The proportion of that is determined by 
the intensity at which you're exerting effort. So when you're doing some high intensity effort, uh, high sorry, high intensity exercise, let's say you're doing sprints, a lot of that exercise is going to be glycolytic, which means you're burning a lot of carbohydrates to fuel that performance because carbohydrates are a very quick burning fuel source, whereas fats are a lot slower burning, and they're they're the ones that you're more burning when you're just kind of you know lounging around, chilling at home, etc. The problem is that the modern lifestyle in combination with the modern diet has kind of led people to lose a little bit of that flexibility. So because there is such a you know sedentary lifestyle in combination with highly processed diet as well as you know very frequent snacking, you're you're constantly giving your body a stream of just refined carbohydrates, refined carbohydrates. And your body kind of loses its ability to rely on fat for fuel because it's always receiving such a steady stream of carbohydrates, right? And so metabolic flexibility is effectively you you taking the reins back on the machinery that your body that that's in your body to, you know, burn what's available and not have to worry about, you know, oh, I I need my next snack otherwise I'm going to crash in the afternoon, mm. right? And we'll speak to us about what is it that has caused us to not have this flexibility. Mm -hmm. It's I would say that really it's the it's the modern lifestyle, like I already mentioned, right? Mm -hmm. Like why why have we lost this ability to burn fat? It's because we lounge around all day. We are always eating. So this is kind of how I've constructed the standard American diet in my head: is you wake up, you have you know your cup of your cup of coffee and your donut something like that, your, your, your sugary cereal. And then, you know, you kind of have a midday snack, like a, a bar of some sort, just a constant influx of highly processed foods. And so your body never has a chance to actually really rely on burning fat for fuel anymore, because it just always has this constant fuel supply. And so really, the modern lifestyle is kind of, it sits at the crux of the metabolic inflexibility that people are experiencing nowadays. Gotcha. And gaining that back is what you're saying is when you reach metabolic flexibility. So your ability to burn fat in addition to carbs. Yeah. And so I would say that in order to regain your metabolic flexibility, it's pretty easy to think about it this way. What's the opposite way? What's the opposite of how you gained metabolic inflexibility? So we already went, we already mentioned, right? That sedentary lifestyle, constant snacking, overfeeding with highly processed refined foods. Those are the ways that you kind of break your metabolism and lose the ability to burn fat. So really the way that you regain your metabolic, your metabolic flexibility is to do the opposite of that, right? Mm. It's to exercise. It's to eat real foods that don't make you prone to always overeating and constantly snacking because real foods are satiating highly refined foods are not and so that's why you're going to always want to reach for that next snack whereas with real foods you're going to you know you're going to eat your meal and you're going to be nice and full until for for a couple of hours until your next meal or however long you decide to to keep your eating window for but so yeah i would say that really there are two ways that you can influence your metabolic flexibility one exercise exercise is easily the, the most powerful lever you have for metabolic flexibility because 
I'm not going to get too into the details of the of the of like exercise physiology, but you can kind of break exercise down into three categories the way I see it. One is strength training. That's going to be your weightlifting, your your body weight training, your however you want to overload and progressively strengthen your muscles. So there's strength training, resistance training, whatever you want to call it. There's aerobic training, which is your kind of slower pace like 10k jog style effort and then there's anaerobic which is your all-out efforts so that's going to be your your sprinting right and so through these three levers you can kind of influence the way that your body processes all these two different fuel substrates so i'll try to keep this really high level and i'm going to simplify it a lot so that we can kind of just have a good understanding so the way i see it is your muscles are your biggest sink for, for carbohydrates. The more muscle you have, the more muscle mass you have, the better you can tolerate carbohydrates. We'll keep it simple at that. that we'll, we'll, we'll start with that premise. So how do you build bigger muscles? You strength train, right? That's, the, that's the, our most powerful st stimulus for, building, for adding muscle mass to our body is resistance training. Now, how do you improve the rate at which it can burn those carbohydrates, your muscle can burn the carbohydrates. In part, that's going to be strength training. Also in part, that's going to be your anaerobic training because that's for the more glycolytic side, right? It's where your body is more, the higher the intensity, the more your body relies on carbohydrates. And then finally, this is, this is I've in the last couple, let's say half year, last couple of months, half year or whatnot, I've become increasingly aware of the importance of, of aerobic training. And that's what, that's really the most powerful tool you have to let, to optimize your fat burning because I'm going to try to avoid getting into the details again, but your mitochondria are, everybody has probably kind of heard your mitochondria are the powerhouse of the cell, right? It's where most of your body's fat burning goes on. Mm. And when you train aerobically, you're kind of all training does this to an extent, but you can really, really optimize the rate at which your cells are utilizing fat for fuel through aerobic training, and that's why it's it's recently become a more important part of my my own training routine. I've picked up cycling since COVID COVID started, but mm. yeah. So those are kind of the the three types of exercise and how they kind of correlate with regaining that metabolic flexibility. Gotcha. I'm just thinking back to my own experience because when I believe I, I knew when I gained metabolic flexibility was frankly, when I stopped having ongoing cravings or if yes. I didn't have some sort of carbohydrate in front of me or source of sugar, I wouldn't pass out. I would be okay. <laughs> Meaning yeah. that generally I, I would have this, this strong urge or craving for something sweet or sugary or high carb. And if I didn't have it, I frankly felt like I was about to pass out. Mm -hmm. And once I was able to overcome that, you were able to recognize that if there is no available, your body is literally flexible and hence knows and becomes smart and says, well, there are no, carbs or sugar if you will so let's use fat instead and that means exactly. sometimes using body fat as well right so mm -hmm. for example the way the way i see it now is back in the day we're walking around as cavemen if we don't have food how is our body staying alive uh 
probably feeding off of some of the body fat until the next meal comes, right? Whenever the, the hunting is successful. Uh, but yeah, I wanted to share my, my personal experience with that because it was, it was pretty life-changing. But to your point, I did have to start working out more and also really just start eating more whole foods, real foods, and cut out all the refined crap that I was eating. I mean, I would eat anything. Literally, I had no awareness. Is I feel you, man. That was that was me the same way before. <laughs> yeah, uh, but it totally changed my life, uh, to say the least. And where I want to go next is we've talked about metabolic flexibility, but in terms of getting there, I want to just even take it back further to build maybe a simple framework for folks who are trying to, to actually improve their health or or improve their fitness or both of them together, of course. But what would you recommend or how would you lay out a framework for folks to think about how to get started on this journey Hmm. so i kind of approach well we'll tackle there are a lot of moving pieces to health and wellness Mm -hmm. right health fitness wellness to keep it simple we'll think about it as nutrition and fitness because those are kind of the two high level pillars if yeah we'll call it the two high level pillars that people think about when it comes to making optimizing one's health or improving one's health not even optimizing right so let's start with nutrition i have adopted peter atia's nutrition framework in the way that i kind of perceive food now i used to be very very precise with how i approached food i tracked every calorie i counted my macros i even at times would kind of, you know, look at my micros and try to meet those as well. But it sounds sounds stressful. It, yeah, it was, that's, that's precisely the way that's the nutrition framework you adopt. If you want to ruin your relationship with food and I'm speaking (laughs) from experience here. So anyone who's listening, don't go and make counting calories, counting macros, weighing your food out. Don't make that your approach to food, please. Um, but yeah, so I've basically adopted Peter Atia's nutrition framework and just really quick overview of Peter Atia. He's one of the, the way that I see is he's one of the leading authorities on leveraging lifestyle behaviors for longevity in a nutshell. Right. And so the way that he has kind of laid out this framework is you can look at nutrition through three pillars. One is how much you eat. One is when you eat, and one is what you eat. And so, in my opinion, we're going to talk. We're going to talk in the context of the layperson who just wants to live a healthy life. We're not going to talk about sports-specific people because they're going to have a different approach, right? So the way that I see it, out of those three pillars, it's it's effectively what, when, and how much. How much I don't think is particularly important because that can lead people to like I said, counting their, weighing their food out, counting their calories, and that can ruin the relationship with food real quite quickly. And so within that framework of three, you really just want to be, you always want to be pulling one lever. You ideally would like to pull two levers at once. And very, very occasionally, you can pull all three levers. So basically with the, I already stated how much to eat, we're not going to focus on that because nobody enjoys counting calories. Nobody wants to consciously restrict themselves of food just to feel better. So 
ideally, we're going to leave that on the side. Every now and then, if you engage in fasting, which maybe could be a topic that you want to quickly address later on, up to you. But if if you're going to do a, a true water fast, that's when you pull the how much to eat lever because obviously you're not eating anything. Yeah. So I would say that the the next lever when to eat is one of the easier levers to pull because choosing what to eat, as we already start, mentioned at the beginning of this conversation, is can get confusing really quickly, right? So I would say that really the easiest lever to pull is when to eat. And in recent years, you know, intermittent fasting, time-restricted feeding, I like to call it time-restricted feeding, but intermittent fasting is kind of the buzzword that people use nowadays, right? Um, time-restricted feeding really is the easiest way to manipulate that lever. So wake up. The most popular one I think most people are probably going to be familiar with is the 16-8 protocol. And that's really just 16 hours of fasting, eight hours of feeding, right? Mm -hmm. And there's plenty of research showing that, that, you know, time-restricted feeding is beneficial for, is a very good way to regain that metabolic flexibility that we were talking about. I won't get into the details of the science, but the purpose of time-restricted feeding of intermittent fasting isn't really to restrict yourself to a window of time and to eat everything that you can within that period of time. The way I see it is time-restricted feeding is actually a way of liberating yourself from the day-to-day schedule of you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I have to eat now, I have to eat now, and I have to eat now, right? It's when you become comfortable with, with periods of fasting throughout just daily, you kind of regain freedom of your schedule. Is if if it's breakfast, if it's your bre- normal breakfast time, and you're not hungry, you can just be like, "Oh, okay, I'm not actually hungry. I'm gonna use this time that I would have spent eating on something else that I can be more productive with, and I'm just gonna eat when I'm hungry, right?" And the same can be applied to lunch. The same can be applied to dinner. It's more of a liberating yourself from the restrictions of the conventional way of looking at food, and knowing that you won't die. And no, yes, exactly. <laughs> it's it's exactly as you had said when you were sharing your own story. Is that you know you can you can look at food and you know that if you don't eat it, you're not going to die. You can you're going to last the next couple of hours until you can eat another meal. Then right, and so that's kind of the when to eat. And pe- like a lot of people can get really caught up on you know should I be fasting for eight, uh, 16 hours or should I be fasting for 20 hours or can 14 hours work? It's like if you really want the most simple answer, the longer you can fast for, generally speaking, the better, given that you're maintaining muscle mass. But it doesn't even have to be that complicated. It's just try your best. I would say the minimum is probably to maintain a 14-hour fasting window at a minimum. And that's incredibly easy to do, right? It's you wake up and you give yourself one to two hours before you eat breakfast. And then you simply cut your your dinner off maybe two to three hours before you sleep. And that should ideally bring you to around the 14-hour fasting window. So really, with regards to how long should I be fasting for, longer the better, but do what works for you. And don't try to make drastic changes, right? Start with what is doable. So if that's pushing breakfast back by 15 minutes, Mm -hmm. so be it. And after you've done it for long enough, that's going to week by week, 15 minutes will build up and you'll get to 14 hours easy, right? Yeah, that makes sense. And I, I want to add here quickly that one of the things that has been helpful for me is 
frankly, to just eat when I'm hungry also. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, your body's pretty damn smart. <laughs> um, and that being said, in the morning, you're, to your point, Daniel, we might be very habitually eating breakfast because that's just what we do. But if you're not hungry, why are you eating the breakfast? Your body's not necessarily asking for it. Um, so that, that's just been a mindset that I had to adopt because I was very much yep. into the, the, oh, well, I have to eat breakfast and I have to make sure I eat lunch and I have to make sure I eat dinner even though sometimes I wasn't necessarily hungry, if you will. I was just eating because I thought I should eat. Exactly. And it's, it's interesting that you bring that up because a couple of my friends who have kind of hopped aboard the, the time-restricted feeding wagon, like that's an insight that they all also gained, that they've come to me and said, wow, like, you know, I, I finally realized that I don't actually have to eat when it's lunch or I don't have to actually eat if I'm not hungry at dinner. It's like, right. wow. I've like, they, they just feel so liberated from this kind of restrictive breakfast, lunch and dinner schedule that we've so that, that most people have commonly adopted. Right. Yeah. Most definitely. We'll talk to us about what to eat then. Yeah. So again, nutrition becomes so can become so dogmatic and, it can get messy real quick. So I'm going to try to make this as simple and applicable to everybody listening as possible. Love so it. we're not going to talk about this in terms of dietary frameworks, right? We're not going to talk about this in terms of eating low carb, of eating paleo, of eating vegan, of eating carnivore, whatever other frameworks there are. We're just going to stick to first principles. So rule number, I'll go through this step by step based on the rules that I apply to my own life is so rule number one is going to be eat real foods. And that's easily the most important rule there is in this entire thing to real foods have, let me take a step back the way that refined foods are processed. So your, your, your cookies, your cereal, your anything that you can buy in the aisles of the grocery store, the way they're processed by your body is such that you're never actually going to feel truly satiated. And I say satiated, not full, because you could just binge on all like snacks and your stomach will eventually expand and feel full, but you're not truly satiated by it. Whereas real foods, the way that they're metabolized by your body, they, they'll they ultimately bring about a feeling of satiety that you just don't get with with all these fake refined foods, right? So number one, eat real foods. If it grew from the ground or it came from an animal, it's good. The second rule is to focus on protein. We know that muscle mass is a really good predictor of mortality long-term. And so really, the the more muscle you have, the, the more gracefully you're going to age. And at the same time, the more muscle you have, the more metabolically flexible you're going to be, as we already mentioned earlier. So definitely emphasize protein and how much protein to eat it's it depends people say one gram per pound of body weight the research shows that a minimum of something like 0.6 something grams is enough to maintain 0.8 something is probably okay for building muscle but if you want to keep it simple one gram per pound of body weight we'll just leave it at that if people really want to get down and dirty they can they they can there's a lot of research in there that we can discuss 
at another time. Or they can feel free to reach out to either myself or Jonathan for, for a little more information on that. And now the only, the only thing, other thing I have to say on the topic of protein is plant-based versus animal-based. And I'm not going to make this about vegan versus carnivore. I'm just going to stay with the science that supports this. So when we eat protein, we're not actually just eating protein for protein. We're eating protein for amino acids, which are the, the building blocks of proteins. And so if you think about it at a really high level, we want to eat protein to build tissue. Our, we're, and we're, we're animals. So that means that our tissue looks somewhat similar to another animal's tissue. Whereas, so that means that the amino acid profile of animal foods is likely a better match for us than plants will be. And that's not to say that you can't eat plants and be healthy. I'm not saying that. You absolutely can. There's enough enough anecdote that to if we if I were to refute that it would be it would be I would become dogmatic about it, right? So you can absolutely thrive on plant-based proteins. It's just you have to be aware of the amino acid composition of those foods and make sure that you're hitting that you're reaching kind of the your body's requirements for it. So Really, that's all I have to say on the animal versus plant-based. Animal is definitely superior from an amino acid profile view, as well as digestibility. So your body can actually use it more effectively than it can plant-based foods. Again, you can absolutely eat plant-based foods if you have, if you have ethical reasons for not consuming animal foods, and you can thrive. You just have to be a little more aware of: Am I hitting, you know, my my leucine target? Which and leucine is the most anabolic muscle building amino acid so yeah that's kind of i'll, I'll leave it at that for protein because um i think that's that's really the the most important parts of it yeah so it sounds like really quickly on, on the animal versus plant it's really just make sure you're getting what your body needs and your, the source that you decide on is totally up to you based on your own unique lifestyle beliefs etc exactly exactly great and so the I guess the final one that I the final thing that kind of builds my that rounds out my what to eat approach is fiber. So we've always been told that fiber is necessary for good poops, for healthy digestive system, um, to protect us from cancer, etc. Fiber has been kind of touted as this magic superfood, right? And to an extent, it's true. So let me kind of break fiber down. I think that fiber is necessary for our bodies, but I'm going to take a step back even further just to, just to set the stage for, for, for everybody listening. So there's, there's a debate in the vegan versus carnivore community that fiber may not be necessary for our body, but what isn't, what is optimal is not is not always necessary, right? So we can thrive without fiber. I think that there's enough anecdotal evidence from the carnivore community to show that people who don't eat fiber can be just as healthy as people who do. But the problem is we have to go back to first principles. Humans evolved eating meat, yes, maybe a large amount of meat, yes, but we still scavenged and we still ate plants. And so just to, to take a step back from all the dogmatism that surrounds the debate around fiber, humans evolved eating fiber. And I think that's reflected 
in the way that our gut microbiome interacts with fiber. So there are several reasons that people will propose why we need fiber. I mentioned some of them. Poops, anti-cancer, etc. Those actually aren't backed by science. I think those come back to correlational evidence. But where science really does back up the, the necessity of fiber for optimal gut health, not just good gut health, but optimal gut health, is that we do need fiber to fuel the trillions and trillions of bacteria that live in our guts, right? They, they, they ideally feed off of fiber in order to thrive and create an ecosystem that's conducive to properly utilizing the nutrition that we then eat, right? So that's kind of just a... I guess I ended up getting into the weeds a little bit, but that's kind of just a high level of how I approach what it is that we should be eating. All right. So talking about fiber then, obviously we're talking about some plant sources, considering that's generally how we think about fiber, right? We yep. consume it from plants. But are there certain ones that you would recommend over others? How, how can we think about what sources of fiber we do consume? And um, to follow that up, is there anything you'd, you'd add there when it comes to organic versus non-organic of those plants that we do choose and vegetables as well, fruits? Yep. So with regards to fiber, fiber can kind of be broken down into two subcategories. There's soluble fiber and there's insoluble fiber. So if you read up any you know, blog article post on fiber, you might see that insoluble fiber is an important type of fiber to consume. But that's based on the premise that you need fiber for, uh, for proper digestion and, and basically poops. Like you need insoluble fiber to add bulk and have healthy poops. But again, I mentioned that that's not actually the case. You can have just as healthy poops without a ton of insoluble fiber. And insoluble fiber isn't actually fermentable by your gut bacteria. So really, it's, it's there to create bulk. And so the way that I see it is that's not really, you don't need to make an effort to consume insoluble fiber actively. It's going to be a part of any source of fiber that you eat. So that's fine. But you, you shouldn't go out of your way to be like, you know, oh, this food has a lot of insoluble fiber, so I'm going to eat it. And that brings us to soluble fiber. So soluble fiber is the type of fiber that your, your, that your gut bacteria can actually ferment and turn into short-chain fatty acids that fuel the gut lining, that keep your gut up and running in a healthy and consistent way, right? And so really... As I said, all, most foods come in, come at, come with soluble and insoluble packaged together. And so there's not really a quote-unquote best source of fiber that you can eat. I would say that as long as you're prioritizing whole foods, as long as you're eating your leafy greens, your, your cruciferous vegetables, your squashes, your whatever vegetables that you like to eat are going to be your best way to consume fiber. Mm. So it sounds like going all out on the veggies. And what about fruits? Because oftentimes we'll think about fruits as a source of fiber, right? What are your thoughts on that? Yep. So fruits are, I think, absolutely a good source of fiber as well. The problem with fruits is that we've, we've genetically modified them to become bigger and bigger and juicier and juicier and sweeter and sweeter, right? And so this is just the way that I kind of approach fruits is... I think that there are some fruits that have just 
been modified to the point where they're not as beneficial as other sources of foods that I could be eating. So for example, to me, I don't really eat that many bananas because a, a true medium banana is probably less than half the size of a banana that you'll buy at the supermarket. It's like if you go into a supermarket nowadays, the bananas are freaking massive. They're like these behemoths of bananas. Yeah. And really, like, I'm not saying that you shouldn't be eating bananas if you enjoy it, if you like them, right? It's just for me personally, I find that there are other foods that better serve the goals that I have for my body. But yeah, so fruits, I like to stick to smaller fruits. So, you know, your berries, I, I pretty much only eat berries, but your smaller berries that have, you know, s smaller fleshy parts and more skin, those are going to be your better fiber to sugar ratio. Hmm. Now, again, food is food shouldn't be talked primarily in the context of just the nutrients they provide. They have to be talked in the context of your behavior and habits. So I'm not saying that you should forgo bananas if you like them, or you should forgo apples or mangoes or whatever it is, right? It's eat the, at, at its core, as long as you're eating a real food, you're doing good. And if you want to get to a nittier, grittier, detailed level of how can I better optimize my diet, that's that's another topic that we'll talk about. But for people who are just looking to stay healthy, I think fruits uh, fruits an absolutely perf a perfectly good source of fiber for for everyone. Yeah, yeah, and I like what you said about just being conscious of the fruit in, in terms of knowing that if you eat it in abundance, that it does contain sugar, right? And some yeah. more than others. But I think what you're saying in terms of your point of the whole foods aspect is, look, if you're going to choose a banana over the donut, why even consider the sugar content? Obviously make what is the better choice to eat the banana, right? Yeah. Versus the donut. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump in here real quick. It's actually interesting because there are some papers there. I, I've seen one paper where I'm going to try to lay this out really, really briefly is they basically took people and they gave them either a banana or a cookie and they monitored their blood sugar response to that, to either the banana or the cookie. Some people, the banana was obviously the better choice. Some people, the cookie actually elicited a better blood sugar response than the banana did, which is really hmm. interesting because I think that says that the, the gut microbiome, I am going to assume that it's the gut microbiome playing a huge role in this. But it shows that you know people really are nutrition really can be a highly individualized thing for people who are looking to you know optimize the way that they eat. But that's just, that's just an aside that that I that you talking about you know banana versus like a more desserty style thing brought up. So just a yeah. fun fun <laughs> tangent. Yeah, and I mean I think it covers the point that, and I can't iterate it enough that everyone's body is very different and the needs of everybody Absolutely. is very different. The way that your body processes foods is different than mine. It's different than Daniel's is different than everybody's. Uh, so taking all that into consideration, I think is, is definitely critical. Well, the other aspect I'm looking at when deciding what to eat, of course, is fats. Can you speak to, to fats and how we can differentiate between healthy fats and non-healthy fats? Yeah. So the, conventional wisdom is that healthy fats are going to be your mono and polyunsaturated fats. They're going to be your plant-based fats. That's your avocados, your 
your nuts and seeds, your olives, etc. Whereas the unhealthy fats are the animal-based fats that are higher in saturated fats, which isn't actually causing heart disease or cancer, but that's kind of the stereotypical, you know, conventionally that's how they've been linked together. So we normally perceive saturated fats as bad and unsaturated fats as good. That's not actually the case. And re with recent research, like this has been, this has actually been very, very evident in this, in the scientific realm. It just has, I can't seem to figure out why, but it hasn't been translated to, you know, mainstream media to inform people about it. The, the, the advice is still limit, satura limit saturated fats, eat your unsaturated fats. And interestingly, the American Heart uh, Association actually came out with a paper last year saying saturated fats are actually healthy for you. And yet somehow that still hasn't made its way into mainstream media. But, you know, that's why, that's why we're doing these podcasts, right, is to, is to inform people about the about how to make the right decisions with regards to what they're putting into their body how they're how they're exercising etc and so really the way i see fats is saturated fats i think are completely healthy and i have the american heart health american heart association to back me up on this so saturated fats eat them they're they're they're, they're absolutely good for you they're not going to give you heart disease they're not going to give you cancer Monounsaturated fats, I think, are also great for you. So that's going to be your avocados, your olives, your... Jeez, those are really the only things that I eat. <laughs> olive oil and avocados. <laughs> um, and those, I think, are completely fine for you as well. And that leaves us with the polyunsaturated fats. Evolutionarily, these polyunsaturated fats made up a very, very small portion of our diets. So... They can kind of be split into omega-3s, omega-6s. There's omega-9s, but we don't really need to get, get into that. Omega-3s and omega-6s are, are the overwhelming majority of polyunsaturated fats. Now, we all know that our omega-3s come from seafood. Like that's, that's why fish is a great source of protein as well, is that they contain omega-3s, which we know are good for a whole host of things brain function for cell fluidity for cell signaling i won't get into the details there so i would say that the recommendation of you know eating fatty fish three times a week three four times a week that's great if you can do that awesome you're doing you're doing amazing so that leaves us with omega-6s which can be a little confusing to talk about because mainstream advice traditionally has told us that we should be increasing our consumption of omega-6 fatty acids and de decreasing our consumption of saturated fats based on the premise that saturated fats increase cholesterol, which causes heart disease, which we already know that's not the case. So the way that I see, I think omega-6 fats are necessary for the body. They're an essential fatty acid, so we do need them, but in much smaller quantities than typically consumed in the modern diet. So there was a paper that I had seen where, you know, our hunter-gatherers who, generally speaking, were in pretty good health, barring, you know, sanitation issues and all of that. But generally speaking, in terms of, you know, nutrition, exercise, they were doing well. Their omega-3 omega to omega-6 consumption versus the modern days was less than 20-fold or some absurd number like that. So... Clearly, the modern diet is extremely high in omega-6s, right? 
And that's evolutionarily inconsistent because before industrialization and agriculture, the only way we got omega-6s were through, you know, the occasional plant food, like a little bit in seeds, a little bit in nuts. But now we've taken those and concentrated them into oils that we commonly cook with. Mm. And so there's an there's kind of an evolutionary incongruency there where we're kind of creating an environment in our body that it never evolved in. And so that can lead to a whole host of issues. It's We don't know that it exactly causes it, but we know that it is also correlated. So I'm trying to be careful here, is that it's correlated to higher inflammation. It's correlated to higher rates of disease. And we the reason we can't say it's causation is because we don't know the mechanism behind it. And it's really difficult for science to work that out, right? But I think it's an ongoing process that they're doing. But really, all, all I'll say about it is that there's an evolutionary incong- incongruency. And the fact that our omega-6 consumption has increased by over 20-fold compared to what back in the hunter-gatherer times is telling that it may not be the evolutionary uh, it may not be the environment in which our body was set up to thrive within right yeah i mean that totally makes sense the analogy that came up is like maybe putting diesel in a car that's meant to take gas (laughs) exactly that's (laughs) that's a perfect analogy and you said of course the monosaturated and the saturated which i'm thinking like butter ghee for saturated for example Mm -hmm. or the fats in in certain meats um and also the monounsaturated coming from oils such as olive oil, avocado oil, and of course the actual thing, right? So olives or avocados. If you were then to just list out for the listeners, what are some oils that aren't those that you would recommend staying away from based yep. on what we've said here? Yep, absolutely. So really it'll come down to people kind of talk about as vegetable oils, but I'm going to try to be more precise and call it seed oils because really these because you could make the case that technically avocados and olives are fruits aren't they <laughs> so so they're not really a vegetable <laughs> oil but, but that's besides the point basically the way that you want to look at it is if the oil came from a whole food that you can that you can inherently tell it is fatty that's probably okay for you so when you squeeze, when you hold, if you were to hold an, a whole avocado without the skin in your hand, that's one fatty avocado. Same with olives. When you squeeze an olive, its fats will come out. Whereas if you take something like sunflower oil, something like like corn oil, like peanut oil, they're not things that you can just hold and inherently tell, oh, this is really fatty, right? It takes a lot of, you know, high temperature, a lot of modern equipment, a lot of processing to squeeze the oil out of those and concentrate them enough so that there's enough to even fill a bottle. And so mm. you basically want to stay away from anything that I guess to yeah, anything that if you were to hold in your hand, you wouldn't think that is inherently a fatty, greasy thing. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it that way. And it and it makes sense. And I do want to say, I mean the main one that is probably the most widely used I frankly all over the world right is vegetable oil at this point in time yeah yeah and and that's that's one of the the big no-nos that (laughs) that i personally would call out you know if there's if there's one thing that i would uh tell folks to just throw out of their pantry and replace with some high quality 
olive oil or avocado oil would be that vegetable oil. But yeah, I think the way you laid it out gives us a, a good way to think about it for sure. Let's move then to fitness. Maybe you can give us a, a framework to think about how we might approach that from a simplified point of view. Yeah. So I believe I already kind of touched on the several pillars of fitness. I'm going to add one more to it. So we already have strength. We already have aerobic and we already have anaerobic. I want to add stability and that comes hand in hand with strength because you'll see that a lot of, I think we all know the stereotype of the bodybuilder who's really strong, who, whose posture is just all over the place, right? Like they're slouched. They have upper cross syndrome. They just have complained about pains and aches in their body. I think that's because they lack stability in addition to the strength. They've only been building strength without the, 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 need, the necessary stability to keep everything in place and moving smoothly. So just to lay it out again, the, the, I would say that the, found, the fun, fundamental pillars of training of fitness would be stability, which and then the layer on top strength. You can't have strength without stability. Those come hand in hand. Then you need your aerobic training which is more your what people typically think about as steady state cardio. So your, your kind of moderate intensity, long distance endeavors. And then there's the anaerobic, which is going to be your really, really high intensity that pushes your cardiorespiratory fitness, I think even to a greater extent than aerobic, but that's besides the point. But yeah, so those are the four pillars that you're going to have that, you, that if you want optimal body composition, optimal physical performance, you need to take those into account. Now, I'll just briefly touch on each of them uh, separately. So strength and stability, we've already said they come hand in hand. And when people, people can get really confused about how to train because again, the bodybuilder style training has kind of pervaded mainstream media. But really, we, we aren't looking for the best exercise for something, right? You know, we're looking for movement patterns because movement patterns are, are, are movement patterns translate to daily act to daily movement. You're not a bicep curl is not really going to be that functional, right? It's not really going to, by focusing on exercises specifically, you're training more for that exercise. And again, my approach is how can the lay person who is just looking for good health achieve said good health, right? So we want to focus on movement patterns. The main movement patterns, people we, reach out to us if you want more detail, or you can look, look up fundamental movement patterns are the squat, the lunge, the hinge, pull, push, and that's upper body pull and push, and then the loaded carry. I'll, I'll leave it at that. Those are kind of the movement patterns, the core movement patterns that you need to address in your strength training, because those are the ones that will translate most effectively to your day-to-day, -day, you know, movement. And really, again, people will try to find, you know, what's the best exercise for building so-and-so muscle? What's the best exercise for this? What's the best exercise for that? You're not really trying to look for the best exercise. You're looking for the exercise that you enjoy doing and can stay consistent with, because what's the point of a good exercise if you don't enjoy doing it? I have a friend who she, she, I, I tell her, cause I love deadlifts. So I tell her all about deadlifts and she's like, 
yeah, no, I can't ever imagine myself doing that. And it's like, there's no reason that I should ever push deadlifts onto her because it's not something she enjoys. There are many, many movement patterns in the hinge category that, uh, sorry, exercises within the hinge category, the hinge movement pattern that can be just as effective for the deadlift for your lay person, right? And so really it comes down to focus on build your build a foundation of stability strength aerobic exercise uh, aerobic fitness and anaerobic fitness focus on movement patterns so that's going to be again the squat lunge hinge upper body pull upper body push and loaded carry because they're going to translate to your day-to-day activities and then choose the exercises within those movement patterns that you enjoy doing because that's the key everything Everything that we've talked about today really ultimately boils down to behavior. And at the level of behavior, it's not really about choosing the optimal thing for getting X result, right? It's about creating habits that you can stick to consistently that will continue to progress you towards your goals over time. And so, yeah, that, I'll, I'll leave the fitness of that, but really it's all about I think the most important one to emphasize there really is choosing something you enjoy and that you can stay consistent with. Yeah. And, and where you were going, I do want to touch on that here in a sec. And one question or followed by how on the fitness piece is if you were to say how often, right? So my question is, well, Daniel, what's the bare minimum I have to do to stay fit? So this is where it can become challenging because I listed so many different pillars, right? Stability, strength, aerobic, anaerobic. I would say that in terms of, so we'll look at it in terms of strength training, aerobic training, and anaerobic training. Stability is going to always accompany strength training. I would say that if you're looking to build muscle, if if your primary goal is muscle building, higher frequency will be better. And I think that the absolute maximum you you ever need is three to four strength training sessions per week, assuming your goal is to just build as much muscle as possible. And then you can, I would say that you can tack on some anaerobic training. So some sprints, just throw that in after, you know, two, two, like one or two of your strength training sessions. And that's, that takes care of anaerobic. And then the aerobic, a lot of bodybuilders and, and, you know, people who are focused more on strength, they don't really do aerobic training. And I think that's fine if your goal is just to build muscle. But again, we'll talk about for the layperson. So strength training, I would say if you're going to forego aerobic training and focus solely on strength, three to four strength training sessions max per week is is good. Now, I'll talk about this from my perspective. I'm trying to optimize all of these. So I think that one strength training session per week is good for maintenance, but not necessarily for building muscle. So for me, I do two strength training sessions a week, and those are two full body strength training sessions. So at least I'm hitting every muscle group twice a week. On top of that, I like to, I like to cycle. So I do two one hour cycling sessions a week as well, which puts me up at four days a week so far. And really I tack on some, some sprints at the end of some of my training sessions. So really, again, that's just four days of training per week, and I'm trying to hit across all of them. I also do martial arts on two other days, but that doesn't matter to most people. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I would say that if you're trying to maintain muscle, minimum of one, but ideally two to three. Two to three for the layperson is good. And then, you know, cardio, aerobic cardio, 
ideally you you would like to be in the two to three range as well but again it comes down to behavior if you don't currently do endurance like aerobic cardio don't try to go straight for two to three days just start with five minutes one time a week and build your way up from there over time right and the same goes with with anaerobic training with the sprints is if you don't if you don't sprint now just pick one day to do you know one sprint one sprint is all you need to get started and then build up over time from there yeah i think one of the threads that i'm picking up on that i think we've touched on already is that the amount of times you exercise and what type of exercises you do are going to depend again on the type of fitness level that you want right so if you want maintenance it's going to be different than if you're trying to rack on 20 pounds of muscle for example uh, so I think that is a, a huge consideration to make in everything that we're talking about here. There will probably be like your crowd. I'm sure there will be people who are extremely hard charging, who <laughs> are willing to do whatever it takes to to optimize their 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 nutrition, their fitness. So I guess in terms of fitness, if I had to prescribe somebody, so if I had to pr- prescribe to somebody who was willing to do whatever it took, I would say two to three full body workout sessions. And then three to four aerobic sessions because the, and do I want to go down here? We'll go down here really briefly in the aerobic training group. There's, there's a particular training intensity called zone two, which is high level, the intensity at which you can maintain conversation with someone else. And that doesn't impair your recovery because Oh, again, I did not even talk about recovery, but recovery is more important than the stimulus you're giving your body. You have to give it the stimulus and then your body has to recover from it. So recovery also factors in here. But I guess, so if you, if for, for, for that person who's hard charging, two to three strength training sessions, three to four aerobic sessions in zone two, so it doesn't impair recovery. And then you can tack on one or two anaerobic training uh, sessions after your strength training. So mm. that's kind of how I would approach it if I didn't have the martial arts to deal with. But that's that's I, I have it, so I can't I can't slam my body with too much Fair. per week. Fair. And question for you: Do you still work out when you're sore, or if you are sore? That's actually a very good question. So if I am sore to the point of like I, I can't feel my legs, which honestly I, I haven't felt that in a long time because my body's become so habituated to it. Like if you're so sore that you can't, that you feel like you can't move, like don't go and try to push a PR, right? Like just get focus on movement. Don't focus on lifting weights. So if if you have a day where you did a heavy leg day and your legs are dead, just go, just get out and walk for the day. Try to get as many steps in as possible. Like that's going to facilitate blood flow. That's going to facilitate recovery. And I think that's a good way of getting out and getting movement in throughout the day, right? But if it's just a, like, a, if you're feeling a little bit sore and you've already had a day off in between your sessions, absolutely, I would, I would go and train. I would go and train hard again, even if I was sore. Because you'll, once you get warmed up and once you, get, once you grease the grooves, mm. you'll come to realize that, oh, okay, the soreness is kind of gone now and I can actually still push hard. Are you actually sore? Is the question. Yeah. (laughs) So yeah, it sounds like, I mean, listening to your body is I think what we're saying here, right? Yeah. And and paying attention to that because oftentimes 
we'll know, right? We'll know if we're trying to force the workout or if we're actually, you know, too sore to work out, for example. Yeah. And in which case, what I hear you saying is if you are really sore and you might skip the strength training, for example, still make the effort to move your body and go for the walk or whatever that yeah. might be. Absolutely. Yeah. Makes sense. Just and move your body, I think, is also a big takeaway in general. <laughs> yeah. Uh, for me and, as well. And there's one more thing to tack on with regards to aerobic is hikes. Mm-hmm. And I can't emphasize right. getting out in nature enough, reconnecting, getting away from your screens, reconnecting with nature and just going on walks in, you know, doesn't even have to be a mountain. Can be whatever whatever hike you prefer, whatever level of intensity you want, just go out and step away from all of the modern tech that we have and just reconnect, pay attention to your surroundings, be mindful and just walk through, walk and reconnect with nature. Yeah. I love that. And that could be honestly a whole conversation on its own because yeah. of the, the benefits of even just doing that. Well, a lot of what we've talked about, of course, sometimes it's the case. And I think you and I both know this, that folks know what to do, right? So maybe someone takes all of this information and they say, well, I know exactly what to do. What is the reason that makes it difficult for us to actually take action, to actually do it? Yeah. So I think, I think that we've already briefly touched on this, on the answer to this question throughout our discussion. And I think it stems from people... The, the, the typical mindset is to be very results focused, right? When you see somebody, I don't know, pull five, like four plates off the ground with a deadlift, you're, you don't think about the process that led to them getting there. You just, you're fixated on the results. You're like, holy shit, like that person's so strong. Like they're, they're pulling so much weight off the floor. Like, how did they do that? What do they, what do they do? We're so results oriented, right? And we, we never really think about the process that it takes to get there. And so really, I think it's sometimes even if we know what the right thing to do is, we haven't necessarily adopted the, the, the proper mindset that will enable us to get there. If you're, if you're starting from square one, if you don't exercise at all today, and I've said that, you know, two to three strength training sessions, three to four aerobic sessions, like don't go and try to do three strength training sessions and three aerobic sessions the next week, right? What you're doing here isn't trying to tick check uh, to, to tick boxes off. What you're doing is trying to build habits. And so ultimately, it comes down to how are you going to build the habits you want that align you with your values? Really, it comes down to you have to build a system that enables you to make small incremental progress to get you to where it is that you want to go. In terms of the mindset, because I think what you're alluding to here is a bigger lifestyle decision that is being made. And for me personally, that is what helps give me the, the energy or the motivation. So it sounds like you're saying getting clear on not trying to gain the 10 pounds, but it's more so why do you want to gain those 10 pounds of muscle in the first place? Or why do you want to cut the 10 pounds of fat in the first place? Or why... Do you want to eat better and optimize your nutrition, health, and or fitness, right? Yep, absolutely. I, f- I forget who said this. I think it was Nietzsche, but he said something along the lines of, he who knows his why can bear almost any how, right? 
So really, I appreciate you bringing that up because I, I, I do think that step one is to gain clarity on what exactly it is that you want. It's like, why is it that you want to lose these 10 pounds? Maybe because it makes you look good. Okay, but why do you want, why, why do you think it makes you, like, why do you want to look good? Oh, then then people will maybe respect me more. Well, why is it that you want people to respect you more? Because it gives me more confidence. Ah, that's the actual why of why you want to lose those 10 pounds is because it will make you more confident. Well, interestingly enough, we we ended with the beginning in mind. We're saying start with your why and get clear on the why. And that is going to facilitate a lot of what we've talked about here, right? The the way to do it will come forth and you will figure it out. I think both of us have had our instances of, of figuring out how to optimize our health, nutrition, fitness didn't become the issue when we actually knew why the heck we were doing it in the first place. Just looking at time, anything else you'd like to share with everyone listening in, Daniel? Yeah, this, so this won't be anything new. This won't be a new insight, but I think really after we've talked about all of these, you know, frameworks of how to approach nutrition, how to approach fitness of like, of like kind of more prescription style things, I just want to emphasize again that at the end of the day, it comes down to, as, as we just talked about, like knowing your why, why is it that you want to do this? And then instead of focusing on the result you want to focus on the process that gets you towards the result because that's where the magic lies, especially in something as challenging to tackle as nutrition and fitness, right? There, there is no end goal with nutrition and fitness. If you, if you make your end goal, you know, deadlift four plates, you're going to hit, you're going to hit it at some, some point and then you're not going to have anything else to strive toward. And so really the, I guess the main takeaway beyond all of the, how I view it as like more superficial, like what to eat, like how to train, et cetera. Like those are all fairly superficial. Really the, the key I want people to take away is that you have to know your why and then fall in love with the process because it's the journey that actually matters. It's not the end result that you've set your sights on because once you hit that end result, you have nothing else to look forward to. Whereas if you focus on a process of continual improvement and, and constantly improving over time, that's where the magic is and that's how you're going to get behavior to actually settle in as habits and persist across time so really focus focus on the process of always becoming better each day as opposed to the end goal yeah love it daniel with the wisdom i appreciate it man and with that being said where can folks reach you and what are you up to next yeah so I guess the best place to reach me would be my blog, which is maxitali.com, and we'll link it in the description. Also, my Instagram, which is at maxitality as well. And really, I'm trying to. I've, I've long, I've for a long time, I've been focused on you know the kind of the high level superficial stuff. The, the what do you eat? The when do you eat? The how do you eat? The how do you train? What exercises, etc. But I've become increasingly aware as you've probably could tell uh, in my parting words that you know it's all about behavior and it's really all about working with the individual to see how it is that they can leverage behaviors to improve their life in a way that's consistent to them in a way that's aligned with their values and their beliefs to get them towards their goals and so you can probably 
begin to see that I'm going to start working on content more oriented towards that aspect of more behavior change, obviously still in line with, you know, probably nutrition, health, fitness, et cetera. But that's kind of the direction that I've started taking as opposed to, you know, just giving, sharing information about, you know, exercises and what to eat and things of that sort. So behavior change, it's, that's where the magic (laughs) is at. Yeah. You know, you know, I love that. So I'll be checking it out. And yeah, for those listening, definitely would recommend checking out the blog. A lot of really good uh, details on a lot of the stuff that we've talked about. If you're, if you're really interested in going deeper, uh, of course, feel free to reach out to us. If there's anything that we can uh, help with in terms of going deeper, happy to go down rabbit holes with you. If you are interested, uh, Daniel and I are both um, health nerds. So we're happy to, to <laughs> entertain that. But Daniel, thanks so much. This was a lot of fun. And you know that we can go on for hours with this conversation. So we have to time ourselves. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, thank you for having me. And thank you for ha- having me on as guest number one of the Become Unlimited podcast. I'm absolutely honored and looking forward to when we can next get together for some more discussions around hopefully behavior stuff yeah no doubt we'll make it happen cool thanks man awesome